Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we ask the question, do you do or do you know? Oh, you got that out the first time, Jonathan. I'm impressed. <laughs> I wrote it down and read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awkward title for, I think, an interesting idea. Uh, so the premise is that uh, I notice a lot, but a lot of the folks that I work with start off as technicians in the sort of e-myth term. So they, they had a job, they got this skill that they developed on the job and they eventually became dissatisfied as an employee and they went out on their own and became a freelancer who did the thing. They sold the skill and they rented their hands out by the hour to pay for them doing it. In, in my world is usually like web developers or web designers or maybe a Rails developer or an iOS developer, and, and they build. They're in the implementation. The vast majority of the work they do is implementation work, and then sometimes it'll do follow-on support and maintenance type stuff. So they're builders, builders, builders. They make things. They take a lot of pride in it, and it is very much their identity. So when people ask them, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm an iOS developer, or I am a Rails developer, or I develop, I, I make WordPress sites, something like that. And over time, what ends up happening is they discover that uh, they have a they have a problem increasing their prices and their rates. They don't; uh, they're too easily interchangeable with other people who say they are the same thing, and they're super duper limiting the range of products and services they could offer. So they have no product ladder because they they just jump in and they code. Or I, I use the example of my wife all the time because she's a knitter. If she just limited herself to knitting sweaters and trying to sell the sweaters, she, it would be a labor of Forget love. Forget it. Yeah, it'd be, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you have to charge $1,000 for a sweater to make 20 bucks an hour. It'd be ridiculous. So the shift that I, I notice, I, I just sort of observe people making over time as they shift into less risky, more profitable, scalable offerings is that they start to think of themselves and it is an identity shift as someone who knows how to do the thing. So I know how to build, you know, beautiful WordPress sites, or I know how to build engaging iOS applications. And maybe you'd still do some building, but by and large, the, uh, the more leveraged parts of your product ladder, the things that are way more profitable and, um, less risky, like I said, are the, the, the things in which you're taking a guide role or a consultative role or an advisor role. So you're like a coach, a teacher, a trainer, um, a consultant, and you're not, you know, up to your elbows in code every day doing that, you know, doing the craft, you're teaching people how to do the craft, or you're advising them while they do the craft. And it's, it's great because it opens up, um, just like, I want to say infinite, but it's probably at least dozens or scores of possibilities for things that you could sell that scale like crazy and aren't as risky. They're easier to price. You don't have, usually these are things that aren't sold by the hour in the first place. So it becomes much easier to increase your uh, profitability. Uh, but whenever I suggest this to someone who's not quite ready for it, they always say, but if I don't do the thing anymore, I won't know how to do it anymore. And therefore my advice will be useless or my advice won't be valuable. So that's the idea for, I think this episode is to talk about the difference between I do this thing. I'm this technician who does this thing. I fix cars to someone who's like, I know how to fix cars. And the way that you could sort of uh, create a product ladder around that 
but still maintain, I mean, not maintain your identity, but still maintain your sharpness. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the core of it is, is I insert a verb, right? I build X versus I know how to build X. And maybe we can use some examples. One of the things that really struck me about this, Jonathan, is the email that you did on this in your daily email series, where you talked about uh, your wife's knitting. And you gave some very specific examples of ways to look at it. And what I loved about that email is I felt like there is a switch that you flip. And that kind of the second you go from saying, I do X to I know how to do X, all of a sudden it opens up your frame of reference. I mean, think of all the things you can do, all the different audiences you could potentially serve in ways other than being the hero. Right. It's such a rush. It's like a sugar high when someone comes to you with this problem, whether it's a a messed up sweater or a a messed up Rails application. And they're like distraught over the situation. And you like, like, jump in and save the day. And that took 15 minutes. uh, So at my hourly rate, that's $20 or whatever. And the, the, the problem with getting addicted to that sugar high of saving the day and being the hero is that, uh, first of all, it's not very profitable. Uh, and second of all, you have no impact. You're not, if you really care about your craft, whatever it might be, and you want to spread it, or you've got some point of view that you want to, to take hold, it's like, it's never going to happen if you're just like running around like uh, a fireman putting out fires for people and, you know, impressing them with your mastery of whatever craft it is that you do. I mean, that is, it's really fun in the moment, but it doesn't build anything. It doesn't create leverage. It it doesn't really, doesn't really go anywhere in the, and pricing it. If you want to talk about that is really hard because uh, that's when people are like, if they do charge by the hour, then you don't get paid fairly at all for your expertise, in my opinion, or you, you shouldn't, fairly is a tough word, but the, you, you don't get paid as much as you, as much as it's probably worth to the, the buyer. But on the other hand, if you charge what they perceive as a lot, it feels like gouging, like you have them over a barrel, like, oh, sure, in an emergency, you jack your prices up, you know, like uh, surge pricing with Uber, it drives people crazy. So it's really hard to price. There's all kinds of problems with it, um, but it is really addictive. There is an, an example where somebody's playing the hero, you know, the ultimate authority. I think David Maester called it the brain surgeon, right? So there is that. There is that category. But the category you're talking about is where you haven't differentiated yourself. Like the brain surgeon comes in and you know this person is highly educated, highly experienced, highly recommended, highly everything, right? And they give you a flat fee. It's not about the, the hour you're in surgery, or the 10 hours you're in surgery, it's a $50,000 flat fee or whatever it is. There is a, a, a point that's authority-based that's all that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what happens when you want to come in and save the day uh, over and over and over again versus all of the things you could do to pass on your knowledge in different ways. And from a business standpoint, that means you can leverage your time, uh, your intellectual property in different ways than you may have thought you could. That is correct, Padawan. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the example in Don Miller's book, Building a Story Brand, about in in the story of your business or the client, you know, in the story that you're telling in your marketing, 
you don't want to be Luke. You want to be Obi-Wan. Luke, Luke needs to be the hero. Luke is the one that needs to make a transformation. Luke is the one that's having all kinds of troubles and is dissatisfied. And Obi-Wan's chill. Obi-Wan's the authority. Obi-Wan's like, hey, here's what you need to do. You have this inside you. He challenges them. This is what, you know, you need to fly off into space. And like Luke at the beginning was all like ready to do it, but then presented with the opportunity starts to chicken out. And, you know, you don't really want to be Luke in your marketing. You want to be Obi-Wan. And I, I love that, that metaphor. Yeah, it's it. the hero's journey. Yeah, exactly. Right? But, but the journey isn't ours. The journey is the client's. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your clients and buyers are making that journey. And it's, it can be really hard if you're used to being the hero and then you realize, oh, yeah, the client's the hero. And my job is to guide them mm-hmm. through their hero's journey. Yeah. It reminds me of talking when we had Joe Pine on the show, he talked about, you know, the experience economy and then the sort of ultimate transformation economy. And if, if you're selling transformation, it's not about you being impressive or you like swooping in and saving the day. It's about you saying like, here's what you need to do. Here's the challenge. Here's the plan. That's where you need to go. I can help you in certain ways, but this is your this is your journey to, to, you're going to have to wrestle with things along the way that I'm not going to be able to like do for you. I couldn't agree more with that analogy, certainly in an authority business, like that's what you're getting to. So if you, if you find that you're doing a lot of implementation type stuff on behalf of the, the uh, customer, a classic example with developers is like, they're supposed to be uh, just like, move, I'll do it. You know, like move, I'll do it. It'd be easier if I just do it. You you don't delegate anything. You just like move. You mess up my code. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. It'd be easier if I just do it than to teach you how to do it. I can't tell you how many times I hear that. And that's the point is about if the, if the point is, you know, if you're trying to be an authority and the idea is to transform your clients, help them make this transformation, you can't do it for them. You can only guide them. So, but I don't think it's a binary proposition. You can have certain, as you make a transition from being a technician to being uh, an expert and then maybe an authority at the sort of highest level, you're probably going to start adding rungs to your product ladder that are more leveraging your know-how, your expertise, and less so your hands or your, your labor. So I would say, so if I was going to challenge you, dear listener, I would say, you know, ask yourself, what's your superpower? That's what I ask everybody on coaching calls. Like, what's your superpower? And they'll, they'll be like, oh, well, it's, it's this. You're like, okay. And, and do you do that? Or do you like teach people how to do it? It's like, oh yeah, that's what I do. It's like, okay, then what can we add a, can we add an offering that isn't you doing that, but you somehow advising about that or teaching or training or coaching or something where somebody else wants to be able to do that too. And what, you know, what can we do to add in something like that? And then over time you can add more and more things. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I don't know if I should use the word teaching. Um, it's the, but there's something, there's a place you can take this, whether you call it teaching or coaching. I mean, the example I'm thinking of in like Fortune 500 consulting is when I did change work. So I would go in after these crazy either mergers or more often even spinoffs where you're spinning this new deal off from an old stodgy company. And so when you go in and do that, I'm only there for a while. And I mean, a while might be a year to 18 months, but 
I can't do it by myself. I have to enlist the help of all of these different people at different levels of the organization. And as I'm doing that, I'm trying to teach them how to do it. But there are people who come in and say, I will just do this. I will do it, which is impossible, by the way, but this is what people will say. I will come in and I will fix this for you. And then they leave and everybody's like, well, that didn't work. Nothing's different. We just spent you know, $3 million on it. And we're talking Fortune 500 here, $3 million on these people coming in. And now where are we? So it's that, I think it's that, that shift in your mind that you don't just have to do, but you can teach, you can coach, you can show the way you can be the guide. Mm. Yeah. You were the one that recommended flawless consulting to me, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Probably. (laughs) Which is that you just, you just like, uh, shared a important key insight from that book, which I wish I had read 20 years ago, which is if you just come in on a consult consulting basis and you just fix everything air quotes, like you said, you didn't actually fix every anything because there's all this process and all this, there's no enrollment and people don't trust it. And it wasn't their idea and you didn't bring them along. And he, that, that book, we didn't even talk about it in the pre-show, but that book has a lot to do with similar concept where it's like, you know, an expert, a, a consultant who wears the expert hat that comes in and does that probably isn't going to make any change. Like they'll do what they said they were going to do and you get the deliverables that you asked for, but it doesn't actually change anything at the end. I don't remember what he calls his, his next level up, but it's like, it, it's like, uh, the, it's more like a guide where it takes, like you could do it faster than the employees in the company that you're consulting with. But if you do that, they won't, it, it won't gain adoption. It doesn't stick. And I saw this over and over and over again because I, when I was doing consulting, I would be the expert. I would come in and be like, hey, just go like this. Like I've seen this a thousand times. Just go like this. Here, I'll show you. I'll just do it. And look, it works. Like just have your people do this. And then, and then I would be surprised later when like, you know, I didn't, none of the changes ever appeared on their, on their website or none of the changes ever appeared in their, um, whatever their digital marketing was. And they're like, what? They paid me all this money and they didn't implement anything. Years later, it's still not implemented. It's like, yeah, because you walked in, you were like, I was too prescriptive. And uh, had I read that book, I would have like been a lot more of a facilitator and, you know, like a guide, just like say, okay, you know, here's, what are we trying to do? Just gone slower, a lot slower and enrolled uh, all the different stakeholders into the process. And then a new culture would have started to form by the time I left instead of me being like, plop, here's your medicine. See ya. Well, that's the challenge with any technical consulting. And I don't mean systems. I mean, anything technical. You can look at what you do and say, oh, well, the government requires us to fill out this form. So let me do it for you. There's all kinds of technical consulting. And if you approach your consulting as a technician, you're never going to solve the bigger problems of the organization. And you're not ever going to get past that just technician. Right. I mean, I I can think of people that I've worked with who are truly technicians and they're good technicians. And I would absolutely call them when I need a technician. But if I need something more than that, they are not going to be on the list. And they're certainly not going to be in my brain for, you know, when I think about experts or when I think about authorities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that we were talking, I think, in the pre-show, I, stop me if we already talked about this on the live show. I can't remember. <laughs> Probably the first objection or the number one objection I get from people when I suggest this move is that they say, well, if if I switch to what, what's the saying, those who can't do teach or whatever, 
And it's like, how do I, how do I keep my skills sharp so that my advice is good if I'm not actually doing the thing? It seems like a paradox or like a catch 22. And the answer is you're still going to be doing your thing. In fact, you're going to be doing it at a much higher level. So example from my world, you're a technical person. Uh, I am like, you know, mobile web, responsible web design expert. And I come in and I say like, here's how to do that. I train the people. I say, Oh, here's some materials. Here's what we need to do in this particular case, blah, blah, blah. And then I, uh, I'm overseeing the project as they are building it out. I'm not actually building it, but I'm seeing the code. I'm in the design review meetings. I'm, I'm helping with all of the important decisions as they come up. I'm not, you know, and there's like people forget that sounds like fun, though. It is. Yeah, it's great. And you're getting... That sounds like way more fun than doing the code. Right. You're super on the cutting edge of of the technology and the browser bugs and all the things that you have to deal with that, that someone in my shoes would consider important in terms of keeping themselves sharp and, and keeping their advice good. You actually filter out all of the rote, boring... Okay, now do that a thousand times more. And, you know, now do that, do that for all 1,000 pages on the website... That is like very time consuming to do that piece. And then all of the really important things that are going to matter in the future in terms of keeping your saw sharp are going to bubble up to you anyway. So you filter out all the stuff where you're not, you know, constantly making really uh, interesting decisions or applying your expertise. Uh, and that it's, it's, but it is funny. People just assume like, oh, well, I have to do all of that grunt work if I'm going to know how to lead the army. And it's like, well, no, not really. Like having come up through that channel, I think is, is pretty, I think it's pretty important. It certainly doesn't hurt if you come up as a technician, but you do need to let go of a lot of the, the stuff that's wrote, like the, the stuff that's not interesting or. Well, it's not strategic. I think most people that are listening to this and most people who, who come into consulting in particular, we all came up through, through a technical road of some, of something, right? Cause we have to learn something. Nobody starts out. Well, it depends. Most people don't start out as a generalist, right? They come into a job and then they start to find out what they like and what they don't like. And then they get into something and then off they go. And they tend to become technical in whatever area that is. And then you grow from there. I mean, I used to, um, in big firm consulting, I used to um, look at people who were out selling. And that was controversial at the time. Like, could you sell consulting if you hadn't done it? And different firms had different positioning on that. Like some firms had, quote unquote, salespeople, right? And other firms like the one I was in, the people who did the work would sell the work. And so what I used to say is in order to sell the work, you've got to have at least a 10% grounding right, in what the work is. In order to do the work, you've got to have a lot bigger grounding, right? But in order to sell the work, you, you probably need to know 10% of what somebody who's doing the work knows, right? So so if you start to scale that down, I'm not sure what the right, uh, it, it probably differs with different areas of expertise, but you don't need to know 90% to be able to to work at a strategic level and teach people or show them how to do what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like that technician is the hundred percent. This is something else. You're not a technician anymore. Yeah. It's like, I mean, not to, this is like the book list episode. I'm also reminded of, um, E-Myth, 
the entrepreneur and the technician and the manager and like the three personality types that need to exist within a business. It's like also a good read on uh, some of these topics. You know, I'm thinking mostly about software developers because those are the people I know. Few of them would be threatened by the idea of being the author of a book. You know, so it like they, it might seem like a big job. They might seem like they're not, you know, expert enough to do it, but they wouldn't be embarrassed by it. Or they wouldn't be like, they wouldn't feel like they were changing their identity. So, you know, if somebody is like, uh, I don't know, like a React Native expert, just like a monster at writing React Native apps. And I said, you know, oh, would you, you know, would you uh, write a book on this now or maybe someday? They're almost always going to say yes. And writing a book is one of those things where you're, you're acting as someone who knows how to do the thing. You're not doing the thing. But it's really hard to write a book, and it's way at the other end of the pricing spectrum. So, I mean, and just sort of thinking of this on the fly, like if that's sort of like the gateway drug to switching over to a know-how mindset, then I could say to someone, "Well, look, if you'd be willing to write the book, you're not writing code, you're not doing it for the reader. You could hardly be more disconnected from the reader uh, in terms of actually executing the." building the code, writing the, building the project or writing the code. But if you think you're not going to get even better than you already are by writing the book, you're crazy. Like you're, you're going to get so much better. Like as good as you might be at writing React Native, if you could write a book about it and you have to test this stuff to death before you put it in print, you're going to get even better at it. So here you are not doing, the, you're writing, you're not coding, you're writing. So here you are not doing the activity and yet you're getting better at it and your identity is not threatened because it'd be cool to be the author of a book. It'd be cool to say, yeah, I wrote, you know, react native for dummies or whatever. And, and then if you imagine that you'd be cool with that, imagine that you'd be cool with what I would suggest as an interim step before writing that book anyway, which is doing training classes. So, you know, if you wouldn't be threatened by writing the book, then why would you be threatened by doing training classes or, you know, doing a course or something like that? And saying like, oh, well, you know, here's because it's way easier to create and update a course than it is to, to put code in a book. That's brutal. Anyway, so it's so it's but it's the same kind of thing. Like writing a book is a totally a know how type of mindset and well, as is a training course or project oversight, all those things. I mean, there's that famous saying that goes something like, you know, if you want to really learn something, try teaching it. And that's sort of what we're talking about because you, when you, the minute you shift from doing a thing to teaching a thing, you have to find a whole new way of, of imparting your knowledge because not everybody learns or listens or absorbs the same way you do. And it's, I mean, we've all proven this with our daily email series, right? Sometimes it's just, you, you think, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. And then all these people write to you going, what? You said, what? What does that mean? Why would you do it that way? And so part of this is, I mean, it's the evolution of going from being more technical to expert and to ultimately authority. It's it's figuring that out. Yeah, I got a half a dozen emails back. When I sent out the first know-how email, I got half a dozen emails back that were like, like, I read this three times and I, what's the difference between doing the thing and knowing how to do the thing? You have to know how to do the thing to do the thing. And I was, so I was like, oh, follow up, follow up message required. And that was the knitting one. So then I did the knitting one. And, and it's funny when you use an example from, from somebody else's field, it like clicks instantly for people. Cause they're like, they're not, 
you know, they're not, they don't have that. I can't see the forest for the trees problem. Yeah. Well, and especially I love the knitting example because knitting takes so much time. Right. You know, there's no way you can make money just by knitting. No, hand knit sweaters. No way. I mean, the only way, the only way to do it is the way that, that it's done in, you know, it's like done by machines. It's outsourced to other countries. It's mass market. When I go into Nordstrom and I see like, if that exists anymore, but you go in there and you see a $300 cashmere sweater. I'm like, that's a bargain. Cost that much for the yarn. You know, (laughs) I'm laughing because the most expensive sweater I ever bought, and this was a long time ago, was a cashmere sweater. It was a thousand dollars. Now I didn't pay that. It was marked down. I think it was like a hundred bucks by the time I bought it. Mm. But it was a thousand dollar cashmere sweater. And I remember thinking, whoa, how do you pay a thousand dollars for a sweater? That I'm just going to spill coffee on (laughs) and I can't wash. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's great to take an example that is from outside of someone's industry and say like, like, you know, if you have like an amazing knitter, of course, they're going to teach classes. Of course, they're going to advise people on how to fix that, you know, like, uh, well, you're gonna have to rip that out because you like, you, you miscounted the, you dropped uh, a stitch. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. You're Uh, welcome. There's all those, like I've seen her without taking a sweater apart, she can go into the middle of a sweater and re-knit it like she untangles the middle of a sweater and then knits it back together it's like it's mad but you can't make a living doing that for people who come in like oh i dropped a stitch i'll move over i'll do it there's no way like there's no amount of money that would make sense there's no price that would make sense for both parties in that in that uh, equation but you can have a drop-in knitting class where people just or literally you're just sitting there knitting in a Starbucks or wherever at a knitting store and people come and pay 25 bucks to sit there and just sit there knitting with you. And if they have a question, they ask you. And then when they're done, you know, and everybody has like a glass of white wine and when, <laughs> and at the end of the hour or two, everybody leaves. It's like, and maybe that will come up. Maybe that like untangling the middle of the sweater thing will happen along the way. But it's a, it's a, it's more like an apprenticeship teacher guide type of model. And believe me, you're, you know, to get back to the, you know, but how do I keep my skills sharp? They'll be sharp. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. It's the don't worry. Just try it and see what happens. It's pretty amazing, actually. One of the things I noticed when I, when I went from in-house technician to uh, the consulting firm that I moved to after my corporate job was that I really, really did. I was really good at my little domain, for example, I, we only had Mac computers, so I'd never had to use FileMaker on windows, which was what I did. I had FileMaker development and I never had to use it on windows. So like an entire problem space was just invisible to me. And when I went solo, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, I only, <laughs> I, I, I only know like, or not solo. They're PCs. I, yeah. Oh my God. Oh, windows. People use those. And there was like a, um, it was just a revelation. Like I, I maybe knew 20% of the whole and I thought I knew like 90% of the whole. And I was like, wow, okay, I am clueless. And it was very humbling, but that was good because then I just was like, it was exciting to be given all of these fresh problems because by nature of, you know, the way that I built stuff, I would, I just wouldn't end up in these weird dead ends that other people would end up in. Or since I was on Macs, I didn't have windows problems. 
So when I got, when I went out and was consulting, I got a flood of new kinds of problems. And then I started writing a column for a magazine and people would send in all of these problems. Like, and it's stuff that I never would have done because they started wrong. Like the reason they're having a problem is because they started wrong. And if you, so anyway, I'm just hammering on this point that you, if you think you're good now, once you start teaching and answering questions for other people and being consulted, you're going to get better than you ever thought possible. You're going to, as you know, in certain domains, it's like, I mean, that's one of the reasons I left FileMaker. I was like, it would like once a month, maybe I'd be like, Ooh, a new problem. You know, after a while, it's a very small domain. So after a while, it was kind of like, meh, don't feel like I'm learning that much here anymore. So let's move over to the web, which is vast. Well, you know, another thing about that that strikes me is that you, most of us create tools that we use. So when you're doing the thing, you have created tools of your own. And when you start to shift from doing it to advising on it, you can take those tools and embed them in some way in the work that you do, whether it's because you're selling a class or you're selling, maybe you're selling the tool itself. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It depends how you, how you deal with it. But I think the point is that that tool, those tools that you use are part of your intellectual property. Those are part of the ways you can get people to see things the way that you do, to do them more efficiently. You, know, you might have been hoarding this thing because it's part of your, your secret sauce, right? It's why you can charge three times more for a project because you get it done twice as fast. I'm exaggerating to prove a point, but we all have these different tools. And when you start pulling those tools out and having, especially coaching clients or teaching clients, you have them work with them. It's amazing what happens. Oh my God. <laughs> you, you start to evolve the tool. People use it in different ways. Sometimes they start talking about it. They give you amazing feedback that you've never gotten on your own because they use it differently or they think about it differently. Yeah. I'm so glad you uh, started talking about IP because the one of the problems with hourly billing, there are many, but one of the problems is that it doesn't make any sense to build tools for yourself. People do it anyway, because there's just intrinsically, they don't like doing things a slow way or a bad way, but it doesn't make any financial sense to do it. You really, you really have to bend over backwards to come up with like a motivation for uh, building a boilerplate library or using open source tools that somebody else built. You, you really have to bend over backwards to convince yourself that, oh no, it makes sense even though I'm billing by the hour. I'm like, why would you even buy a faster computer? It, it doesn't make any sense, but, but people are frustrated by slow computers and they're frustrated by doing things in, in a way that they know is the hard way or the long way around. But when you, when you shift away from this doer mode where your clients are accustomed to, especially when clients are accustomed to paying by the hour for someone to do this thing for them, labor. I need someone to do this labor for me. Uh, when you start to shift away from that, it becomes easier to price it in a way where they're not expecting to pay by the hour. Nobody expects to pay by the hour for a training class. Like, no, you don't pay for the by the hour for a book. Like, there are all these things you would never pay on a time basis. So, okay, once you do that, and start offering those things, just like you said, I'm, I'm repeating what you said, but from a pricing standpoint, once you do those things, 
then all of those tools and IP and all of that stuff and the systems you created and the processes and all that stuff all of a sudden becomes super valuable because it's making you way faster, way more effective. You can sell it on its own. It's probably setting you up as the go-to person for whatever it is you do instead of yet another person who does this. So it's just, it's, it has a differentiating uh, component. It has a, a big financial incentive in terms of uh, delivering a result more quickly. And then it has the pricing profitability standpoint where you you can do less work and get paid more money, which is nice too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I t- totally agree. And it's, you know, the typical consultant has developed all kinds of methodologies and tools. Um, and, and a tool could be something as simple, like in my business, I use something called a brand sheet, which is a, a, a worksheet about brand that asks particular questions as part of the homework when someone's working with me. It's very simple, but there are times that using that feels profound to the receiver, to the recipient, to the person who's going through it. So you start to look at every tool you've developed through the course of your career and say, oh, hmm, I wonder if we could use this here or the opposite. I found this when I was doing uh, one of my courses is that I didn't have a tool for certain things. And I thought, well, how would I, if I were doing this from scratch today, how would I do this? So I invented one right? And you put it in there. So it's all of those things. You're developing your IP, you're developing easier ways for you to get the job done, but also for the people that you're ultimately going to guide and to transform. What tools do they need to get it faster, get it better, uh, get it longer, you know, so that it sticks, so that they, they can do it over and over and over again. So ultimately, they, they don't need you at some point. That's right. the goal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I do an exercise in uh, the pricing seminar called uh, Sawdust, and it's it's about looking back through your stuff. So, like, let's say, dear listener, right now, you just uh, you do you're a technician, you do this thing, that's your identity, and you're you're happy with that. But you're you know maybe would like to start branching into something else uh, that's a little bit more up the authority food chain, so to speak. Uh, the exercise we do in TPS is to like look back through your past projects, emails, uh, blog posts, anything, just all the stuff that you've generated all, all these years of doing the thing that you do, you probably have, you know, Philip Morton calls it sawdust because like you're doing your carpentry and it's creating all this dust on the ground that seems like garbage or useless, but you can actually use it and use it for things. And uh, if you go back through all of this sort of detritus of your technical work, they're almost if you've been doing it for a few years, I almost guarantee you there's something in there that you could codify or spruce up or just or like uh, anonymize and just be like, oh, there's this process that I never really think about it. I just started doing it and it's stuck that where at the beginning of every project I do this strategy engagement, it goes like this and da, 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 and like these are the steps you go through. Here's how long it takes. Who's here's who needs to be in the room. Uh, here's how it works. I could even make a, a template or an SOP for it. it it's pro- you'll probably already have it. And then you can say like, oh, okay, well, this could be the basis of, I don't know, an innovation workshop or a strategy session or something. Depends on on what you do, but it's probably already sitting there if you've been in business for, you know, three to five years, it's probably already there. Well, that's part of what happens. You know, we've talked before about this journey from whether we call it freelancer or technician to expert to authority is the more you focus on the, the knowing how to do versus the doing, the more your brain works on those things. So the more sawdust you create, 
It's, yeah, it's, it's so a true. bigger and bigger pile. I like that metaphor. Yep. All right. Do we leave any stone unturned? Is there something else we need to? Maybe not. I think there's, <laughs> I, I have to think about this for a second because there, I'm, I'm enamored of this whole tools and IP idea. And I think it's, if we need to make a case, I don't know that we do, we've done it before. If we need to make a case for shifting from that technical focus to expert and ultimately to authority, you know, part of that is that you start to create things that you wouldn't have created before because you couldn't see them. It's like the second you put yourself in the shoes of the client trying to make this transformation, you look at everything you've done differently. You're flipping a switch, but it's like once you do that and the light is on, you can't unsee it anymore. Right. It's there's the there's a clarity around that. And it's not an all of a sudden, you know, ah, but it happens in time as you understand the client and the transformation you're bringing them more and more of this will come up to the surface. Yeah, it's hard. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's hard to describe to someone who hasn't experienced it. But you're you're operating at a higher altitude. It's like you've got a you've got a better view of the playing field. So. You, it, I remember feeling when the first time when I started to manage employees. So like I was a technician, I was an employee at this company. I got promoted and I was managing my old position. And, and I could not believe the difference. It was like, all of a sudden I was like, um, I really felt like I had climbed up a tree. Like I was in the forest doing my thing. And then I got promoted and I was like, and now I'm in the treehouse, and I'm looking down. I'm like, oh, I can see all these patterns. We were all doing this. <laughs> we were all doing the same silly thing. And this is when I started to have light bulb moments about hourly billing because I was farther. I had this. I had a better view. And when yeah. you when you when you are set up to receive questions from all over the place, in a, you know, as a consultant would, like people are coming to you with their questions. When you're set up to do that you can see the way more of the playing field and you can start You're to the see the forest patterns. ranger. <laughs> yeah. You've seen the fire, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And you, it, it takes you to a level. You said this earlier. It's like, you know, teaching makes you an expert. It's like you, you get to this level that you never would have if you were just like a genius on the ground and, and you still need genius on the ground, but there's certain limitations to what you're going to do with that kind of a career. And if you do want to really get to be expert level, you need to be dealing with more problems than just the ones that you would encounter on your own and see patterns that exist in the, in the overall landscape. And all of a sudden you're just like, your eyes like pop open. You're like, Whoa, yeah. this is so different. Yeah. But it is yeah, hard it's to awareness. Yeah, it's it's I'm sure talking about it doesn't help. Like maybe someday when this happens to you, be like, oh, yeah, I remember when they talked about that on TVOA. <laughs> it's it doesn't feel convincing as I'm saying it, but it it does happen. Yeah, it's I mean, it's hard. It's hard to explain. It's it's I think that as a as a technician of some sort, you put your head down. We've all done it. You put your head down and you go, okay, I need to do this. I need to finish this by such and such a date for client X. I need to get it done. Boom. But when you can stop and look up, it's all it takes is stop and look up and you just do it a little bit at a time. 
it, it's, it, it changes how you see, see things. It changes how you look at clients. It changes how you look at your role. It changes the intellectual property that you ultimately create. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, you're seeing the big picture. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Now I feel like I've said my piece. <laughs> Good. I was. Do, I was afraid. But do you? <laughs> I was afraid. That, I was afraid this would be our first Rochelle speechless episode at the end. I was like, wow. <laughs> nah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye. Bye.